sacrifice, self-denial, things we're good at, right? If you would follow me, you must take up my cross, deny yourself and take up my cross and follow Jesus. Many of the things we we pursue in life require self-denial. Life is not all fun and easy. And many of the anything that's valuable is going to re- require a price to pay, right? A sacrifice to be made. Think about um, having a career that requires many years of self-denial and hard work in school. But because we take our ambition seriously, we sacrifice, we pay the price, we pour in to have that calling. Hopefully the calling that God has given us. How about raising children? Anybody know how to do that without self-denial and sacrifice? If we're going to do it well, it's going to require that. That's part of what being a parent is. So much self-denial. How about saving money? You have to have discipline. You have to have self-denial to save. Or how about losing weight? Yeah, I'm sorry. I had to bring that up, right? Listen. I'll save you some money. There's no pill you can buy on TV that's going to accomplish that for you. You eat less and move more. That's how it works. That's free. You can save money on all the infomercials. The exercise, the Peloton, it'll work if you'll ride it. (laughs) But I promise you it'll become a coat rack before long if you're not careful. We get bored too easy. We want it to be easy. Getting in shape. How about marriage? This may be news to you, but to have a healthy marriage is going to require self-denial, self-sacrifice, like Jesus. If you're still king and the world's about you and the rest of us are just visiting and here to serve you, you'll never have a good marriage. And husbands, you're to lead the way in self-sacrifice. You like being head? Servant. Servant leader. It's what it's all about. But anything we value is going to require sacrifice. And if we value it, we will sacrifice for it. If we take it seriously, we will sacrifice for it. And sacrifice ourselves for it. And and that's what we see the church in Antioch doing in this text. We see a lot of self-sacrifice and God's blessing upon that. Where are we at? Well, we're studying through the book of Acts. That's our habit at Grace Church is to study through books. We do interrupt that. Sometimes you'll see around the Easter season, we'll do a sermon on resurrection. But normally we're working through books. And so we're in chapter 13 now of Acts. We've seen Jesus raised from the dead, spend 40 days with his disciples, tell them a great deal of what to expect, telling them to wait until they were clothed with power, power to be witnesses for him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So we see them wait and pray. And then on Pentecost, power poured out on the church to witness. And they they are witnessing Peter's preaching and thousands are being converted. We've seen trouble from the authorities on that and continuing as we've walked through but what's happening is the gospel is doing exactly what Jesus said and up until this point it's been spread through persecution the gospel started in Jerusalem Judea Samaria 
And now it's going to the ends of the earth by the church walking through hardship, walking through sacrifice, self-denial, taking that gospel to the ends of the earth as they're able. And from this point on, we're going to see Paul is the major focus. I I find it interesting in this text that it's almost like a, a bare mention and Saul. But the gospel is going to continue to go to the ends of the earth. And we see the church sacrificing, taking the gospel seriously and sacrificing to see it go to the ends of the earth. And what I want you to see from from this, just these few verses as we sort of step in the water of the missionary journeys, uh, we're on the cusp of those missionary journeys. But today. The main point drawn from this text, Lord willing and hopefully, is that the gospel is taken seriously and the mission of church is accomplished through prayer and fasting. The gospel is taken seriously and the mission of the church is accomplished through prayer and fasting. First in verses 1 and 2, the gospel taken seriously in calling missionaries. It says this again. We'll read it again. Repetition is a good thing. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, and just and Saul. These guys are, are together. They're in leadership. We've seen, if you go back, and I'm going to refer you back to the, to the sermons in the, in the second part of Acts 11 for, for more depth on Antioch and the church and what was going on there. But the bottom line was the gospel had been spread through persecution and people had been witnessing in Antioch and a church was born. Largely through witnessing to Gentiles and it's largely a Gentile church. And it's being organized. We've seen that and we talked about that in chapter 11. And they're meeting together in large numbers and being taught and discipled by Barnabas and Paul. And we've seen that church grow to the point now that there's leadership in place. It will continue to grow. And there's owning of the mission in place. And there's a burden for the lost. But these guys are together. It says that uh, they're prophets and teachers. And remember, we're in the foundational phase of the church. The apostles are still on the scene. The prophets are on the scene. Part of the foundation, we talked about that from Ephesians and other places. But they're there. They're worshiping and fasting. Look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Lord said, the Lord spoke. But who are these guys? Barnabas? Well, we've seen Barnabas. Did you know Barnabas' real name is Joseph? The apostles called him Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement. You see that at the end of, I think it's verse 36 in chapter chapter 4. But we've already been introduced to him. We've seen him in his work in Antioch. And he's there and part of this group of prophets and teachers. It says Simeon, who was called Niger. Well, Niger means black or dark complected. He's probably from Africa. So that, that tells us there's a, there's, a, there's a multicultural aspect to the church here in Antioch. And especially Lucius of Cyrene. That's from the coast of northern Africa where he would be from. Uh, this is not Luke, by the way, if you've read any of that. But Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Probably a foster brother of Herod. Who was raised by, well, I don't know if he was raised by, but Herod the Great was his daddy. 
Think about that. Coming out of the household of Herod the Great, who sacrificed, tried to kill Jesus and killed all the you know, children two and under to try to wipe out Jesus. And then the, the one he's, he's a foster brother to here. Uh, Antipas is the one who had, he had, um, he had John beheaded. <laughs> he's the one who mocked Jesus in his trial. He's a man of high society and opportunity being raised in the king's house. And it's a wicked house. And he's in the church leadership in Antioch. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like Manan who grew up in that environment and yet is here with the church, part of the leadership, worshiping and praying and fasting with the church about mission. But just a little introduction. And then it just says, and Saul. Like Saul's a minor character. Saul, who, who is Paul, who will write a large amount of the New Testament and take the gospel uh, throughout the known world then until he himself was martyred for his witness to Christ. But there you have, you have some leadership there and they're together and they're taking the gospel seriously. And it says, while they were gathered, while they were in worship, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. They were worshiping and fasting. And we'll talk more about fasting in a minute. But they're gathered together. They're worshiping and fasting. That word for worship is the word from, that we get liturgy from. Liturgy is simply an order of worship. Everybody is liturgical in some form because everybody has an order of worship that they go through. Some are more high church and others not. But, but they were worshiping together. They were ministering to the Lord together. They were serving. You might see some of those words in in your other translations. A word about priestly service, really. Um, it's how it had been used. But they were worshiping the Lord and they were denying themselves. They were sacrificing. Because what's on their heart is mission to the lost. So they're worshiping, they're praying, they're seeking the Lord. And in the context of that, look at this. Missionaries were called. God gives confirmation. And he says, it says, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Set apart, appoint, designate to a specific service. Joseph, Barnabas, the son of encouragement and Saul. For the work that I have called them to. See calling. Yes God calls individuals. But he confirms that through the church. So, so the word is given that. They're to set apart Paul and Barnabas. They probably already had this burden. They probably discussed this with the church. They probably put this before the church. And God is giving confirmation. In the context of worshiping the Lord. And fasting. And really fasting is a major note I want to look at a little bit a little bit later. We don't talk much about that. 
But Barnabas and Saul are to be set apart as what we would call missionaries, those we foreign missionaries, those we send to a foreign field to to be gospel ambassadors to Lord willing, see people saved and churches planted. Um, we have home missionaries. We have foreign missionaries, those who are sent forth apostles with a little a, not apostles, capital A, those whom Jesus called with that authority. But that word is used also in another way to speak of those who are missionaries. But the confirmation is given. The missionaries are named and they are to be set apart for the work. And we'll talk a little bit more about the work in a little bit, but it's a big work. It's starting small and then it gets bigger and it's bigger as we see more and more missionary journeys. And it says, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Just their support for them, praying for the God spirit to empower them. And that's the way of commissioning them to the task. The church commissions Barnabas and Saul to take the gospel and notice there's more fasting and prayer look at that in verse whenever god mentions something twice in three verses it it's to be the serious note of the passage and that thus the 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 title of taking the gospel seriously and seeing that the mission is accomplished through fasting and prayer one thing you can't say is that fasting is not a New Testament thing because you know what? Why, it's right here. Not a law, it's not a command, but it's part of what the church practiced. But there's more fasting in prayer. Barnabas and Saul are commissioned. Missions, notice this, missions is transitioning from incidental to intentional. What has spread the gospel so far is the church the leaders trying to stamp out the church. So persecution spreads the Christians. But what does that tell you about the Christians? They were living for Jesus. They were speaking about Jesus because wherever they went, the gospel went. And then churches are birthed. And so the gospel and missions has been incidental. It has been fueled up to now. It hasn't been fueled by a bunch of guys sitting around a map. We're going to go here, then here, then here, then here. It's been in God's providence. His church scattered through persecution and his mission being accomplished. But now it's transitioning from incidental to intentional. And listen, God is going to see to it. And we see it just again, this snapshot of the church in Antioch. God sees to it that churches are planted, not just to gather in worship, but to go out with his heart for people. Now we do both. You see silly things on Facebook. You know, the church is not a building, it's a people. And so, you know, you don't have to go, you don't gather, you just go. And that's mostly people who aren't doing anything. But confusion is what it is. And a lot of times it's people that's been hurt in the church. I give you that. They've been hurt by church, done wrong, and that, so they've sort of chucked that. And I can be a Christian without doing all that. But, you know, Jesus hadn't given up on his church yet. Neither should you. But God plants churches where people are passionate about worship and passionate about mission. And the mission is accomplished through self-sacrifice. In other words, God plants churches that take the gospel seriously. 
And next week, we're going to begin looking at the first missionary journey and see all the trials and all the hardship and all the aching, but all the work and the, the blessing that is done in the churches that are planted. So we'll begin looking more in depth at those missionary journeys. But we already see the mission of the church being accomplished through the means of fasting and prayer. In the context of worship, missionaries confirmed and called. And through prayer and fasting, sent out on mission. And we'll see when we pick up in verse 4 next week. Actually sent out by the Holy Spirit through the church. Let's just pause a minute and think about think about what's here. First thing I want to bring up is it's interesting to note that these epic missionary journeys originate in Antioch, not in Jerusalem. And it makes sense if you think about it, a predominantly Gentile church with a passion to see the gospel taken to the Gentiles and the rest of the world. And, and it's not that Jerusalem is not involved. Right? They know about what's happening in Antioch. They've, they sent Barnabas. Barnabas brought Paul. So they're involved. But it's just interesting to me that this missionary push, this missionary push to the world is coming out of Antioch in Syria. A little bit of a review. Capital of Syria. Huge city. Huge city. Like 500. Um, I want to say 500. It's not five, five, around 500,000. I start to say 500 million. I'm like, that's not right. Around 500,000 people, very multicultural, a lot of idolatry, a hard place to witness, and yet look what God has done. And it's from that city that missions springs forth, intentional missions to the world. And so we'll notice that. But it's just a note to notice that that comes from Antioch, spurred by Antioch, not Jerusalem. Second, I want to mention, and this is this. Hopefully, if you're if you're struggling with the call to ministry, maybe you might. God has given you a passion for foreign missions, and maybe you even have a people group in mind, or maybe you're struggling with the call to pastoral ministry, struggling with the call to maybe to be a deacon, right, or to be an elder in the church, things like that. I just want to help you to see right here. This is how calling happens. It's not just from an individual who says, I'm supposed to be a pastor and that's all there is to it. Calling to ministry comes through the church. It is an individual matter. When God is calling a person to a certain work, He will give you a a desire, a passion, a burden for that. But that's just the beginning of God's path for you to walk in confirming your calling. The sense of call, desire, is expressed to the leadership of the church. And then opportunities are given. Gifts are tested. With Paul and Barnabas, they're not guessing what kind of people they are. Because a large part of the church is due to their ministry there in Antioch. These men are witnessing. They are teaching. They are discipling. They are great commissioning. They're where they are. So there's every confidence that they send them out, they're going to do the same thing. Sometimes we, 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 we have a burden, we have a call, but we really haven't tested that call and we really can't prove it to anybody else. And so the first phase is for the church to give you opportunity to test your gifts 
and to test your calling. To pray with you. Yes, to fast with you. And as opportunity arises, to ordain and sin. So if you're truly called by God to the ministry, you'll be submissive to healthy leadership in the church that will help you test and confirm those gifts. And if you're really called, then as that process is, is completed, or maybe while it's going on, God will provide an opportunity for ministry into which you can go and be called. So you go, maybe you're a, a young man who feels he's called to the ministry and you go to your leadership and your leadership gives you opportunity to participate and to, to teach um, maybe Sunday school, maybe small groups, small ways. And it seems to be that you have those gifts. So they, they, they bless and, and help you through uh, seminary in whatever form that takes training for ministry. And then as that's going on, you get to continue to, to test those gifts so that when the time comes to send you out, there's confidence not just in you, but in those around you that God has truly gifted and called you. And that so that they can lay hands on you, testify to that fact, and ordain you to the ministry. It's hard sometimes when God's given us a calling and we're chomping at the bit and people try to slow us down and it takes humility to walk through it sometimes. But I want to tell you, much harm has been done on the mission field. And much harm is done in churches when self-willed people force their way in. And are not submissive. And are not humble. It's really all about them. And they do great harm in God's kingdom. So if God's called you there, He'll get you there. But there's a process to walk through. And listen, it's for your good and blessing. I know I remember chomping at the bit. Couldn't wait. Just set me free. Let me go. But I look back on the, the walk now that it took to get there. And I thank God for every minute of it. Of men who loved me, slowed me down, helped me, corrected me when I needed it. Showed me my need of training, which never ends. The seminary just gets you started. You don't really learn to minister until you're out there doing it. And if you're a young man, unless you are an extraordinary young man, you should be serving under somebody first when you get out there. So anyway, the call comes through the church and that's what we see happening here. Saul and Barnabas didn't just step up and say, hey, God's called me, bless me and send me. But the church saw the gifts. The church appointed them through the Spirit, confirming that through the work of the church. And in a different way then, but same thing happens. And then they were able to, with confidence, send them forward. Third thing I want you to notice, ministry, well, you know, it started in Antioch, not Jerusalem. The call to the ministry is worked out and confirmed in the church and sent out by the church. And then the church in Antioch had a passion for gospel expansion. A passion for gospel expansion. These are gospel people. These are gospel sharing people. They've seen the work God has done. They, they know of the Great Commission. That Jesus has commanded the church to go into all nations and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations through evangelization and training. After that happens, we've seen that happen in Antioch. And they have 
a, a, a gospel seriousness, a gospel passion, such that they are fasting and praying through worship and through special appointment for people to take the gospel to the world. They are serious about getting the gospel out. They took the gospel very seriously. Locally, that's what we've seen as we've watched the church in Antioch grow. They were witnessing. They were teaching. They were sharing Christ and preaching the gospel. And people are coming to faith locally. And God's gifted people that have, uh, some of them, are being sent out now broadly to do the very same thing. All true works of God will be characterized by gospel passion. Great commission, passion. Love for Jesus. Love, will be characterized by love for Jesus, right? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What is the overarching commandment to the church? Make disciples. Make disciples. They had a passion for the gospel and all true works of God. All true church plants of God do. Not that we're perfect in it. Much need for growth in our individual lives and in our church life. But that's true. And that should be a burden on us. And look what happens when they take the gospel seriously to such an extent that they're willing to sacrifice themselves to see it go forth. Not just through giving, as important as that is, giving of, you know, resources, giving of their time, giving of their talents, giving of their persons, their bodies. God calls us to and works through the means of prayer and fasting. And it's just another element of taking life in Christ seriously and here taking the gospel seriously. What is fasting? Well, there's not just a small percentage of the year set aside when we give up stuff. Now, Part of the church calendar is Lent, and if you want to have a season when you remember Christ uh, fasting and his temptation and, and all of those things, that's good. But we're not commanded to do that season from Scripture, right? But, but fasting is a biblical thing. There's really no particular season for it. Just like there's no particular season for faith or repentance. It's, a, it's an as-needed thing. Fasting is not a command, like prayer. But it is a means. It is a gift. And we'll bring more of that out later. But primarily, fasting is giving up food to seek God. That's primarily what was meant by fasting and the fast, is that we stop eating. To seek God. Prioritize. We're, we're, we're stretching out for something greater. We're, we are feeding our souls through seeking God seriously. But it, you know, just one of the lexicons of that word for fasting is going without food for a, a devotional purpose or religious purpose. Not, I mean, this is one of the things that convicted me. We'll fast to be healthy. Intermittent fasting, you might have heard of that. 
We'll fast to lose weight. But do we fast to seek God? Regardless of the health benefits. Do we deny ourselves in that way? Fasting can be going without food or some other good gift in order to seek Him. His will, His power, His blessing. It's a means of focusing more intently on prayer. If, you don't, if it doesn't have that aspect, Scripture often mentions the two together. Giving up this to do this. Giving up the feeding of the body to feed the soul in seeking God. If it's not coupled with prayer, there's, there's a problem. But it's going without food or some other good gift, not sin. You're to repent of sin. That's not fasting. I'm going to give up dirty jokes for Lent. No, just give up dirty jokes. Because that's sin. I don't know why I picked that one. Better than the one I was thinking. But... Fasting is a means of focusing more intently on God through prayer. In our text, the concern is gospel expansion through missions. But it's a, self, it's a form of self-denial to seek God more seriously. To set aside other things so that we are pouring into God. Seeking His help. His forgiveness, His power, His blessing. There are a lot of reasons to fast. In the Old Testament, it was often a way of expressing grief. I mean, think about being clothed with sackcloth. Have you ever had a burlap? You ever know what a burlap bag is? Think about putting that on. It's afflicting yourself, not being comfortable. Throwing dust on, dirt on the head. You know, grief, expressing grief and fasting. David fasting over, over the child. It was a way of expressing repentance. It was a way of humbling oneself before the Lord, seeking His help and blessing. It was usually in a desperate situation. We'll see one of those in a minute. John Piper says that fasting is born of desperation. Where are you desperate for God? What's going on in your life or in your circumstances, in your surrounding environment that you are desperate to see God impact and intervene. Have you been desperate enough to fast to see Him do so? You don't earn His blessing by fasting. Christ earned His blessing. But you connect to Him more strongly through self-denial. John Piper said, Fasting is born of desperation and it's desperation for His blessing for his help. And it's often coupled in scripture with prayer. Just a few ways fasting and prayer help us. Fasting and prayer can help us to hear from God. It removes some distraction. It removes some self-focus. It focuses us on God. Fasting and prayer can reveal our hidden sin. It will test you. If, you're, if anger is your struggle, guess what? One of the first things to pop out when you start fasting. Urgh! Impatience. 
I mean, you name it, but it will it will test you. It will reveal your hidden sin, and that's what we should want. Because we want to grow in grace. We want to be set free from that. We don't want to feed that. Fasting and prayer can strengthen your intimacy with God because it's a gift from Him. And, and as we draw near to Him, draws near. Fasting and prayer can teach us to pray with right motives, not self-motives. Help us pray with right motives. Because we're, we're focusing away from self. Now, um, granted, you're going to be hungry. If you've never tried it. I remember the first time I tried fasting for three days, I thought I was going to die. And I wasn't doing it all for the right reason. A lot of why I was doing it was to see if I could do it. So... That's why I was so miserable. There wasn't a lot of seeking God involved. But I read it in scripture and I said, we should be doing this. Needed a little more instruction. But it, it can help us and teach us to pray with right motives. And fasting and prayer can build our faith. But you know what? As we see in the text right here, fasting and prayer can change your situation. It can change the world around you. I'm familiar with this because I talk to a lot of people about this. But people have marriage difficulty. That's no news to anybody, right? Welcome to the club. We've never had a perfect marriage on earth. Maybe Adam and Eve for a little while. Not long. But do you take that seriously enough to fast and seek God about it? And to focus on you first. Here's what happens when people come to me for marriage counseling. The husband comes in, fix my wife. The wife comes in, fix my husband. Now, I know I've done a few things wrong, but really, you need to do, you need to work over here. A little bit of news. You're not glorified yet. There's work for you to do and growth for you to have. And every marriage is a taking and bringing together of two people. Now, at any particular moment, one of them might be doing more horrible things. That doesn't mean you don't need to seek God. Because God would have you seek Him and be the... If you're the wife, He would have you seek Him and be the wife you're supposed to be. Or if you're the husband, seek Him and be the husband you're supposed to be. And trust Him to work through that. When people come and they start saying, when they, I'll... I stay, stop. Because you're looking at them. Look to Jesus. Live for Him. You do what you know is right for His sake. He did that for you. Now, we don't encourage people to stay in abusive situations and all kinds of stuff. There's more to say. But marriage requires self-discipline. And are you serious enough about your marriage to fast for it? About your children? About their salvation? About your job? About whatever the situation is? And especially, listen to me, when's the last time you fasted so that you would be a more effective witness? That's where the conviction, a lot of the conviction came this way. Do I take the gospel this seriously? Do I take life in Christ seriously enough to pray and fast? Are there situations where I'm desperate for God and I want Him to intervene and I will deny myself to see it? Of course, submitting it to His will because we don't always get what we pray for, obviously. But how about for others to come to faith in Jesus? Are we willing to fast for that? 
I heard a story this week about a church who took this seriously and they did they began to implement fasting. They didn't do it like 40 days or anything like that. It was like, I think it was one day a month. They would fast and have a prayer meeting. And things began to radically change in their church. And people began to come to Christ. And at first they didn't connect the two. And they were like, wow, what's going on? And it's like, God's blessing. Our taking the gospel seriously. Seek the Lord. Seek Him in prayer. Seek Him through fasting sometimes. Seek Him for those things you're desperate about. But seek Him that we would be effective with His gospel. That you would be able to be a witness. And that we as a church would be rocking this area with the gospel. And seeing new believers in here that need to go through fundamentals of the faith or or some other program. I praise God for transfer growth. And a lot of our growth is transfer growth. And Christians moving in. Especially military and all of that. But we should have more conversion growth in the church. And if we're witnesses we will. We all have a part to play. And it's foreign missions. We don't all go to the foreign field. But some of us stay behind and support and encourage. And give and fast for and and pray. But I hinted at this earlier, and some, some people will tell will try to tell you that fasting is part of the old wineskin of the Old Testament, that we don't do that in the New Testament. Well, they have a problem with texts like this. Because not only do you see fasting, you see God blessing it. Let me, let me give you just one sentence. The gospel does not free us from fasting. It frees us to fast. The gospel does not free us from self-denial. Let me put it that way and you go, oh, true. The gospel doesn't free us from fasting. It frees us to fast. Christ fasted. He taught his disciples to fast. He taught us how, not as a show. Right? We, I mean, but obviously you can do it together. They were doing it together here, but not as a self-righteous show. But the gospel frees us too fast. We know God blesses His means and we embrace them. Not to, We don't fast to make ourselves acceptable. We fast because we know we are. And we're crying out to our Father to help. Now, he might change your situation or He might change you, but it'll never be fruitless. But the gospel frees us too fast because we are accepted in the Beloved. Nothing you can ever do will make yourself acceptable to God. In case you're sitting in here and you're under that delusion, there's not going to be a weighing of your good works and your bad works to see which one's heavier. Isaiah says all of our righteousness is filthy rags before God. In other words, there's nothing we do that's completely pure of in thought, word, and deed of sin, there's nothing we can impress God with. And we try to fix our own situation trying to wash out sin with sin. You can't save yourself. You can't be good enough for God to accept you. He's not grading on the curve. Otherwise, Jesus came for nothing. You have to be righteous in thought, word, and deed to be acceptable. And there was only ever one, and it's Jesus. He lived, He came and lived and fulfilled all righteousness. He was purely righteous and deserved only blessing. 
He did it out of love for the Father. He did it to provide a righteousness for His people because we don't have any. And then He died on that cross as God and man, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, to pay the penalty for the sins of His people. And on that cross, He said, It is finished. And He purchased 100% of our salvation. He even gives us the faith to receive it. And He calls upon us to trust Him. Nobody will ever be saved without trusting Jesus. That, that, that hand of faith that just reaches out and receives the gift, is, it was dead and, and it, the gospel and spirit at work brings you to life so that you turn and trust Jesus. Is your hope in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, for your acceptance with God? Well, I've known people who claim to be Christians and boy, look at what they did. Yeah, I agree with you. But you're not supposed to be looking to what they did. You're not supposed to be looking at them. Look at Jesus. Jesus is what proves the gospel, not our family or friends or anybody with imperfect performance. And some Christians do horrible things sometimes. Some people claim to be Christians and are not and just continue in horrible things. But Christ died for our sins. He makes us acceptable. When we come to faith in Him, all of our sins are wiped out and His perfect record of righteousness is credited to us. We are clothed in His righteousness and cleansed from all of our sin through faith in Christ and faith in Him alone. None of my works add to that. You can't save yourself. Trust Him. And by God's grace, if you do trust Him, He receives you, even with weak faith. Because He's not looking at you for the basis of your acceptance. The gospel frees us to fast. We do not earn God's blessing through fasting. We connect to His power. It's a means He has given. We connect to Him and seek His intervention, His will, His glory. Something that certainly we see it in the Old Testament, but we see it in the New as well. It's not a command. Fasting is not a command. It's a gift. It's a gift. One of the means through which we connect to His power when we're desperate for Him. Are we desperate to see the gospel go forth? I'm not. Don't raise your hands. Have you ever fasted? You have situations in your life that you're desperate for God. And especially the gospel. That we would be faithful with the gospel. Serious about the gospel. And see the gospel go through through our lives. Those around us come to faith. And through our church. To see our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And as God enables us, take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We have one foreign missions partner now. We need more. A lot of us are witnessing, but we need more of that. And we need it corporately, organized, different, various ways to serve the community and get the gospel out. We need growth. The church in Antioch fasted and prayed. The gospel went forth with the power of the Holy Spirit. And a lot happened. They took the gospel serious. They experienced His blessing and they changed the world. And we're going to see that as we study the missionary journeys. See them as outflow of this prayer meeting. Let me give you a couple of stories. 
One from the Bible and one not. John Piper tells the story about Dr. June Gon Kim. I, I'm probably butchering that name. But from Seoul, South Korea. And, and Piper asked him, is it true that you spent 40 days in fasting prior to the evangelism crusade in 1980? Dr. Kim said, yes, it is true. Because he and the chairman of the crusade, they were expecting a million people in Yoido Plaza. But six months before the crusade, the authorities said, change their mind. Can't do it. There was a lot of turmoil in the culture and they just didn't want that many people together at one time. So they, they took away their permit for having the crusade. So they petitioned their senators and their... No. They decided not to, not to do, go that route. But Dr. Kim and his associates went to, and I don't know where this was, a prayer mountain. Maybe they have prayer mountains. I don't know what that is. But it says they went to a prayer mountain and there they spent 40 days before God in prayer and fasting for the crusade. When they returned, they made their way to the police station. And they were, then the police officer said, oh, we've changed our mind. You can have the crusade. God did that. Look at this amazing story through prayer. Look at Second Chronicles 20. I want to read something for you from Second Second Chronicles. King Jehoshaphat. And he is one of the few good kings. There were a few good kings in Judah and none in Israel, the northern kingdom. He's one of the few good, not a perfect king. Doesn't end very well with him. But, but look at this in, in, in uh, chapter 20 of Second Chronicles. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites and with them some of the Munites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and watch his response. He's desperate for God. Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. And look at this, proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. You see the prayer, the fasting and prayer together. Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nation. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you a, in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. 
And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let uh, Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Fasting and praying, desperate for God. Without God's intervention, it's going to end badly. It says, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones and their wives and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah. Don't worry, if you struggle with these names, you're not alone. A Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, so God is sending a word. He says, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Zig. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of, of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Notice, go out against them, but you're not going to have to fight. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the, the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. They believed his word. Rejoiced. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever and when now watch and when they began to sing i mean they're worshiping in the middle of their difficulty they're fasting and praying they're believing they're worshiping and when they began to sing in praise the lord set an ambush against the men of ammon and moab and mount seir who had come against judah so that they were routed for the men of ammon and moab rose against the men uh, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. And when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. And when Joseph had and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers of goods, clothing, precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. And I'll stop there. You can read the rest later. Impossible situation. Desperate for God. Assembled in prayer. Fasted. Called on the Lord. And what was going to be a curse ended up being a blessing and provision. And all the enemies killed each other. 
all through fasting and prayer. Now they didn't earn God doing that. They didn't deserve for God to do that. But they, 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 they expressed their desperation for God in the way that he had ordained. And look what a blessing. God worked powerfully through prayer and fasting. And God works powerfully in and through us as we deny ourselves and seek his gracious power in prayer and fasting. Back to Acts chapter 13. You realize that the outflow of this prayer meeting, the outflow of this fasting is three missionary journeys. Suffering, yes. Hardship, yes. But churches planted all over the known world of that time. The outflow of this fasting and prayer in this call are 13 of the New Testament books written to churches that were planted through these missionary journeys. And the outreach flowing out of this pivotal prayer and fasting time, the gospel continues to go to the end of the earth all the way to Swansboro and beyond. All God's blessing on His people as they were desperate for Him and cried out to Him through fasting and prayer that they might be able to send the gospel to those who didn't know. So we see the example in the church. The primary example is Jesus Himself. The primary embodiment of self-sacrifice is Jesus. The one who truly denied Himself, took up His own cross, and achieved our salvation. He fasted and He taught His disciples to fast. He fasted for 40 days before He entered into His temptation and His ministry. He taught us to fast and how to fast. And through His self-denial of living for us, dying for us, being raised for us, He's now reigning for us, and He's coming back someday to get us, and He's reigning to see His gospel go to the ends of His earth to call His people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language to Himself to inhabit and populate the new heavens and the new earth forever. Jesus has blazed the trail of self-sacrifice for us. And He calls us to follow Him. And that's what the church in Antioch was doing. Following their loving, gracious, self-sacrificing Savior. And they were serious about it. Are you desperate for God? Well, Paul or Saul, the one barely mentioned here, certainly knew something about self-sacrifice. And we'll see that as we walk through the journeys. But at the end of his life, he wrote his last letter to his disciple Timothy. And he said this. He said, I have fought the good fight. Fight of faith. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. The very person God used to write what we, we are owning and seeking to growingly live up to as our theme verse, Philippians 
121. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul poured out his life as we'll see as we march through because Jesus poured out his life and because his amazing grace came to even to the one who was trying to destroy the church. And so Paul treasured his Savior and treasured his gospel. He took that gospel serious and it was his main purpose in life to love and serve Christ by sacrificing whatever was necessary to see his gospel go forth and his kingdom expanded. And two of the sacrifices he regularly made were fasting and prayer. And Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, follow Christ. <laughs> looking at this and just dabbling, we haven't even exhausted nearly this, but looking at this, let, let our takeaway be, let us strive to sacrifice, to take the gospel seriously. Because the gospel is taken seriously and the mission of the church is accomplished. Through the God-given means of prayer and fasting. Let's be this kind of people. Not to make ourselves good, but because Christ has saved us. And out of love for Him. Let's pray. Lord, we're not a self-denying people. We don't live in a self-denying country. But the gospel turns everything on its head. We thank you that you are a self-denying Savior who lived for us, who died for us, who was raised from the grave, who gives us salvation as a free gift. And may your grace ignite a passion in us so that we are, we are desperate for you and we run to you through prayer and fasting when necessary. And I pray that on the top of that list of desperation for you, will be a desire to see the gospel reach the lost in our Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, Lord. Humble our hearts. Shake our hearts. Shake our lives. May we never spend one day trying to earn your grace, but may we live in it and see that the gospel has set us free to, to run to you, to fast to you, for you, to focus on you, to connect to your will and your power. It's simply a means of grace, Lord. Lead us forward and help us to be people who when needed are willing not only to pray, but to fast to see your grace go forth, your gospel. And Lord, for the other things in our lives, many of us have really significant struggles. Help us to focus in and express our desperation to you. Not looking at fasting as a magic bullet, but seeking to be set free from all of the, the self-focus and the things of ourself, the sin that ensnares us, to look to you and to seek you and to experience your intervention in a greater and deeper way in our lives, in our environment in our circumstances help us to deny ourselves to take up your cross and follow you it's in jesus name that we pray amen